Hello and welcome to The Spectator Books podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm very pleased to be joined by Jay Rubin from Seattle, who's calling me from Seattle, to talk about the new anthology he's publishing with Penguin, which is the Penguin Book of Japanese Short Stories. In this country, I suspect we have a pretty distorted or partial view of Japanese literature, and I'm hoping that Jay will be able to set us straight a little bit. Jay, the Japanese writer who we know most in this country, and the one who is, as the sort of presiding don of Japanese literature, has provided you your anthology with an introduction, is Haruki Murakami. But as he more or less admits in his introduction, he's not very typical. Is that right? Is he not very representative of Japanese literature? I think that's fair, sure. A lot of people find him odd, even in Japan. He has he has made himself into one of the most popular writers in the country, and he has a lot of fans. I think you still find a good number of critics who are a little uncomfortable with seeing him as a mainstream writer. He's He's got his own style, and he has been terribly uh, successful at nourishing that style and making, I think, influencing a lot of younger writers, for sure. There are, the younger writers have been influenced by him, but I, I think there, there are many older critics who find that a regrettable fact. <laughs> I mean, one of the things he's, he says in his introduction, which intrigued me again, shows how little I know about Japanese fiction, he said, you know, the dominant form almost is this thing he calls the I-novel, which he said has been a huge deal. And I confess, ego maximus ignoramus, I had never heard of what an I-novel is and what that means in Japanese. Can you explain a little bit about what this this mainstream we don't know about is? Well, this is really looking back to the beginning of the 20th century when the the dominant school was the so-called naturalist school. In Japan, naturalism was didn't quite have the social breadth that you that you associate with that term in, say, France. But it primarily meant writing unflattering self-portraits. This is what helped Japanese literature to take off at all. Japanese fiction, I should say, to take off at all, and that was the extremely serious sense that one is presenting the unvarnished truth of life, and particularly one's own life. Murakami has always been opposed to simply assuming that the reader is fascinated by the personal life of the author. He prefers a much more creative approach and has, as he puts it in in his introduction, he has that first page. He talks about the drummer Buddy Rich and, and how Buddy Rich, when he was admitted to the hospital, was asked if he had any allergies, and he says, only to country and Western music. And Murakami says, in my case, my only allergy is to Japan's so-called I-novel, the form of autobiographical writing that has been at the forefront of Japan's modern fiction since the turn of the 20th century. Many writers, I mean, there are writers like Tanizaki, who does certainly has, has been tremendously successful, and Tanizaki, if he had lived later than 1965, would have probably gotten the Nobel Prize. He's, he's an astoundingly creative writer who's, who wrote anything but I novels. He's one of Murakami's favorite writers in Japan. This is not to say that there is nothing available in Japanese fiction but I novels, but they definitely have been the common, uh, the, the, the dominant form, and they have 
kind of set readers' expectations very much. The Japanese reader has been so conditioned, especially in the case of a, a piece of fiction narrated by an I narrator, they've been so conditioned to assume that that I is the author, is an unvarnished portrait of the author himself. And uh, occasionally we'll feel betrayed, the reader will feel betrayed to learn that something that the that the I narrator says about himself turns out not to be literally true of the of the author. It's a, I mean, the novel is a form. I mean, you said that there's been this great, it sort of took off at the beginning of the 20th century. Is it a form that has sort of Japanese antecedents? We think of the novel as kind of basically evolving in the West, at least we in the West do, and maybe we would. Is it something that kind of came to Japan with Commodore Perry in the middle of the 19th century, or is it something that's that's had a sort of separate but parallel evolution to Western forms? I hate to disappoint you, but the first novel created in the world was made in Japan. <laughs> it's called ah. the, the Tale of Genji, and from the 11th century, an amazing long novel of what was then everyday life for the aristocrats. But it very much does what a novel is supposed to do, and that is to burrow into the psychology of the characters. And you, one of the probably the greatest accomplishment of that novel is to present believable characters who are deceiving themselves. Self-deception is a very sophisticated thing to be able to convey in fiction. And they were doing, you know, the author of the tale of Genji was able to do this back then in the 11th century. Goodness, long before Don Quixote was supposed to have invented the Oh, yes. <laughs> Don Quixote, no, Don Quixote is far less sophisticated in terms of conveying the psychological reality of, of its various characters. Has the Japanese novel followed the lead of the tale of Genji primarily, or have there been breaks as there were in the sort of Western novel where you suddenly get, say, Flaubert coming in and, you know, the free and direct style and naturalism and have there well, been by, those by left the time, By the time Japan opened to the West, fiction had pretty well declined into a kind of uh, a semi-pornographic representation of the life of the merchant class. Kind of, I guess, if you go from the tale of Genji to what was available in the 19th century when the Western, Westerners showed up, it, in a way, went backwards. It's fantastically funny and interesting stuff, but it's not as sophisticated. It's not as, as subtle in its grasp of character. And the Japanese, in a sense, had to relearn that from Western fiction. The, the fiction was associated with the world of the prostitute, the world of the lowly entertainer, and to reestablish fiction as a, a respectable art was a whole new project that was undertaken when the Japanese began to read Western literature and realized how important the novel was in the, in the, in the West. And is there an extensive transaction now and since then? Has there been a lot of back and forth in terms of influence on genre, in terms of you know, style? I mean, is there a lot of commerce, essentially, between the Japanese novel and the Western novel? I think so. And I think you've, you've got several writers like David Mitchell, for example, who, who are quite open about the way they've been influenced by Murakami. And they were encouraged to write the way they do very much from reading Murakami. So he's had an enormous impact, I think, around the world. 
far from from the shores of Japan. I don't think any writer has been quite as influential beyond Japan in the West as Murakami has. He's really quite special. I suppose there are periodic in the West. Mishima, I suppose, you know, was certainly read, and Banana Yoshimoto was very Ryu Murakami a little. I mean, there have been. I think Kenzaburo O is read here as well. You know, other writers that we see in the West, would you say, do they give a an aggregate a kind of even however few of them there are, a sort of sense of what the shape of Japanese literature is like? Or is there a sort of huge body of work in fiction or in short stories that's mm-hmm. you know, doesn't get translated? I mean, you know, in the same way I think probably in Scandinavian literature, you know, we see all the murder murder police procedurals. <laughs> in the West, but you know, there's, we don't see the rest of it a lot of the time. I mean, is are we getting kind of one, one ear of the elephant? Well, you know, the rise of Murakami is like a, a second wave of popularity of Japanese fiction abroad. There was a period, if we were having this conversation 30 or 40 years ago, we would have been talking about Tanizaki and Mishima and Kawabata, that they were the three dominant writers who were considered to be the most representative Japanese writers. And they were in their day. Mishima killed himself in in 1970. So it was up to that point. Uh, Tanizaki died in 65. Kawabata didn't last much longer than 1970. He, he, also, he was another Japanese writer who killed himself. But they were certainly the dominant ones, the ones who people were reading seriously. Knopf was publishing all of them and pretty much had the monopoly on Japanese fiction with those three writers. Yes, you include in your anthology Mishima's short story about seppuku, which of course was yeah, mm-hmm. how he killed himself. Is that Did you put that in because it's his greatest short story or is the canonical one or were the circumstances of his death something that influenced you when you... I put it in primarily because I couldn't get it out of my mind. I, I read it many, many years ago. I guess I've read it once or twice over the decades, but it's one of those things that you just cannot, even if you'd like to, <laughs> to forget some of those incredible bloody images. You can't. There's an intensity there that stays with you. It is, of course one of his most representative works, and it's very well translated, by the way. The uh, Jeffrey Sargent, the guy who translated it back in the 60s, I think, when it first came out in English, did a marvelous job on it. So it's always been available to English readers who are looking for things Japanese. The trouble is it's now gotten into that category. I don't think anybody would stumble across this story accidentally. I think I'm really very pleased to be able to kind of bring it back out on the surface where it's probably been largely buried over the last couple of decades. When you were making your anthology, was pleasing yourself in mind or were you hoping (laughs) to produce something that was sort of in some way said, look, here is the Japanese short story over the last hundred years or so. This is what you need to know about it. And here are the examples. You've read it thematically, for instance. I did not primarily attempt to present a kind of representative body of works for the Western reader as such. In fact, I quite deliberately got away from the model of the chronological 
presentation of representative works or so-called important works in the history of the literature. I certainly, I did that when Penguin first suggested this project to me. My first reaction was to write up a model table of contents that I thought I might be able to present to them. And very few of the stories that I put on that list finally survived into the, the final form. I had something like 28 stories that I put together on that tentative table of contents. And as I worked on it and decided, tended more and more to go f with works of fiction that I found unforgettable, works of fiction that had in some way influenced me, I was going more with that than what might be of interest to someone who wants to read the history. Finally, I don't see this book as a book that's designed for university courses on Japanese literature. It's not designed to teach how Japanese fiction developed, who came after Doppo, for example, or why Kawabata is, is featured where he's featured. Uh, finally, the way I put the book together, it's irrelevant. These questions of historical development of the fiction, it's really just trying to present Western readers with great stories, and I think there are so many of them, it was not hard to fill a 500-page book with great stories. Are short stories more or less equivalent to their, their Western sort of status, I, something that a lot of, you know, some people specialize in, but publishers kind of groan when they're presented with them by successful novelists? They get a lot more respect in Japan. Are they sort of higher status than the novel in Japan as a film? Yes, I, I think not higher status than the novel. I don't think that's true, but especially in the modern period, since the Meiji, since, say, the turn of the 20th century, so much literary activity in Japan has been organized around literary journals in which people publish short pieces of fiction. So many prizes are given. The most prestigious prize for a new writer, the Akutagawa Prize, which is named after the writer of the story Hellscreen and the collection, Akutagawa Ryunosuke. That prize is for short fiction, finally. Uh, very rarely, well, it's never for a long, a full-length novel. Very often, it'll be for a novella, but certainly not, not a novel. We're always moaning, generally, in the UK, there's nowhere to publish short stories. My colleague Philip Hensher has, you know, says almost nobody regularly publishes short stories and pays for them in a big way. Mm -hmm. I mean, The New Yorker's kind of about it, and a few little magazines in the States. There's almost nothing in the UK. Are there still plenty of literary magazines in Japan publishing short stories then? Yes, absolutely. It's a very lively industry still. There are more and more prizes and more and more writers trying to win them. So it's quite an active literary scene there in terms of short fiction. You know, one of the categories you talk about, I mean, you've mentioned I mean, Japan's obviously had these kind of cataclysms in its history. I mean, there was the sort of first the middle of the 19th century being kind of forcibly opened up and then the post-war Douglas MacArthur period and, of course, the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Have they really percolated through the literature? Have did you see fictional responses to that being very defining in those eras? I don't see it quite in those terms. I was quite sure that I wanted to end the book with some kind of fictional representation of the 2011 earthquake and tsunami. 
that's probably what got me started more than anything with uh, trying to organize the book more thematically. So I figured I went from that one disaster to disasters in general. I decided to make a subsection of the book, fictional representations, fictional reactions to some of the great disasters that occurred right from 1923 on. 1923, there was a gigantic earthquake. So that section on disaster starts with the 1923 earthquake. That's the one part of the book that has a chronological element, simply because of the order in which these disasters occurred. I followed the actual historical order of of the events. Once I started thinking in terms of arranging one part of the book thematically, it was kind of a natural switch to thinking of that for the whole book. I've never much liked anthologies where you have no idea what's going to happen from one piece to the next. If you're only going from one piece to the next because they were written in that order and they come out in that order, you can go from a comic piece to some kind of brutal representation of a crime uh, to anything else. I mean, it's really unpredictable. But I thought it would make much more sense to try to group say the stories about men and women, relations between men and women, getting those in a, into a one section. That ended up with being a primarily a presentation of women writers, by the way. I've got quite a number yeah. of, of women writers in this book. I'm very pleased with that. I noticed that. Have women regularly through the history of the Japanese novel pulled their weight equally, as it were, or has it been something that's mostly been done by men for a long period? If we go back to the tale of Genji again, to the 11th century, it was written by a woman. Women in those days were locked up. Essentially, they were locked up inside their houses and had nothing to do all day. And part of their amusement was writing. And that ended up the first novel being by a woman. But the tradition kind of collapsed over the centuries. And when you get into the modern period, very few women were taken seriously as writers, as Higuchi Ichio, who is not in this particular collection, but most of the dominant writers were men, and it it was quite a battle. There was a long period of Japanese, modern Japanese fiction, where women were all said to belong to the women's school, as if there were a women's way of writing fiction. Joryu Bungaku, it was called, Literature of the Women's School. And it was really quite demeaning once you think about it, especially after World War II. I think women started to be more aware of how they had been pigeonholed and resentful of that. You certainly don't hear that term anymore ever. Women have become fully accepted members of the writing community. They write, they get prizes. They have no prejudices anymore to overcome in terms of being accepted as writers. Can I ask finally, which is slightly off the turf of what you've written about, but in the West, we're looking at graphic novels as being, you know, something that is gradually kind of, in a way, converging with literary writing. In Japan, obviously, manga is a very big part of the sort of publishing output, at least. Is it seen as a sort of separate thing from literary fiction and, uh, you know, one of the best-known responses to Hiroshima out here, of course, is, is Barefoot Gen. Mm-hmm. Oh, good, you know about that. You yeah, know, sure. do, are comics in Japan just a totally different ballgame, or is 
manga fiction something that sort of does cross-pollinate in some ways with... Are you, for, are, you, are you familiar with the journal Monkey Business? There have been seven issues of it. It was published annually for seven years. I believe we've had the last one for a while now. It may be on hiatus, it might be out of business entirely, but it's a wonderful way to become acquainted with absolutely contemporary writing in Japan. I'm sure you can get it somewhere, but it's simply it's called Monkey Business, the editor's name is Motoyuki Shibata, and he has included, I think, at least one graphic short story, not a full novel, but at least one in every issue there has been one included. But I think that tends to be a rather progressive view of the situation. I think you still have something of a of a prejudice against graphic novels as literature. In the case of this particular book, the thought crossed my mind, well, if I'm going to really represent what is being read in Japan today, I have to have some graphic novels. But then I would have had to start from scratch because I have never been attracted to those things. I don't have a taste for them. I decided I wasn't going to give it a, a try this time. So I, I suppose a truly representative collection would have had one or two comics, one or two graphic pieces in there. But uh, I'm too old to start with that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, it leaves something for the follow-up anyway. And a nightmare, obviously, for your editors as they figure out how, how, how some of them should read back to front. Anyway, Jay Rubin, thank you very much indeed for your time. I enormously enjoyed hearing about your new book. Thank you. Thanks an awful lot. You were listening to the Spectator's Books podcast. Um, very much hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please do consider rating or reviewing us on the iTunes store. We'd love to hear from you.